after my freshman year in college, I decided, well, I, I wanted to go on a mission trip. And so I went on a mission trip to Peru and I was really excited and I did, I raised, raised the money to do it. I was not, I'm not as good a salesman as my son Dominic is. So it was, um, somehow was able to get it and go have this powerful spiritual experience. Um, I think it found my call really to ministry on this trip. And I was planning on doing like a semester of summer, or a half semester of summer school when I got back, because I was at UT. And in the middle of my trip to Peru, I was like, I, I don't, this won't help me right now. I need time to discern. Like, God has put this on my heart. Is this true? What am I going to do? And so I had a little money saved up, and I had a, a minivan um, that I took the seats out and just started driving around the country backpacking. And so I went to uh, Big Bend. I went to Guadalupe Mountains, Carlsbad Caverns. This was my real big, my first uh, backpacking experience by myself. I went up to... Um, Long's Peak and Rocky Mountain National Park, the Tetons and Yellowstone. I remember in Yellowstone, I was like all these I would do backcountry because it's like back then it was free to do backcountry and it was all this. It was really easy. Um, Yellowstone, the ranger had like a forty-five on his belt. It's like watch out for bears. Do you have one of these? And I said, No, sir. I don't have one of those. <laughs> don't trust the bears. Like yes, sir. <laughs> And, and Yellowstone, the, the only day, I did see a bear, it was far away, the only day I did see Yellowstone was there was a bison at one point running down the trail, and so I just like walked off the trail about 40 feet, and just kept on running, and so that was, just followed the trail, so good, good bison, that was nice. Um, I go to a bunch, of, a bunch of wonderful places, I end up the last time in, in Duluth, Minnesota, and I'm going to drive home the next day, and at that time, uh, my parents lived in College Station, and I was excited because I was going to drive from Duluth to College Station in a day which takes I-35 all the way to Waco. So you get on in Duluth, and you get off in Waco, and then you're there. So it's a long time on I-35. Um, but it was, it was great. I had it mapped out. I thought it would be just about like 15 hours. There's 15 or 16 hours. It was going great. Um, it's not too bad at that point. And I was used to a lot of driving, and I was going along. And it's, this is great. I'm, I'm do, making good time. I'm going far. And then I get to Oklahoma. Ah, Oklahoma. <laughs> So I was already a, you know, as a freshman at UT, most of the cheers at UT have to do with Oklahoma not being wonderful. <laughs> That's Sunday morning language. Um, so I get there, and I was making great time. I was cruising down the highway, and then there's suddenly this traffic jam in the middle of the interstate, in the middle of rural Oklahoma. There's like nothing, um, nothing going on, and I'm just stuck there in my minivan, uh, with like a gallon of water, and that's it. I'm gonna make, I just gotta make it home. I got nothing else. I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna make it. So I'm stuck for two hours to go like three miles. It's not, you know, yeah, that doesn't make anybody happy. And then they get to the end, and the reason why it wasn't construction, it wasn't a wreck. They had to forgot to remove a cone. There was a cone in the road that delayed it down to one lane. But nobody thought, like, what if we just get rid of the code? No, we're just going to wait in traffic. Can anything good come from Oklahoma? <laughs> My friends, we're continuing our series in this new year called New Year's New Homes. And we're looking at these texts from, from the season of Epiphany but also the reality of homelessness around us in the Austin area. Um, the first, two weeks ago, we kind of looked at some of, some of the realities of it, the data that, of that it's easy to have our own personal experiences, but to see how many people are actually experiencing homelessness. 
in this area, that there is, at last year's count, there were about 2,000 um, people experiencing homelessness in Austin. It's mostly, mostly men, um, but there, there's a lot of women as well. It's, um, there's 8% of the population in, in Travis County is African-American, 33% of the homeless population is African-American. So there's a lot of disparities. There's a lot of causes and consequences. It's not something that you can neatly um, wrap up in a bow and solve or just have like some kind of ordinance pass and then it's suddenly fixed. Last week we talked about some of the concrete responses that, and, and realities that relationship is at the heart of um, a lot of people experiencing homelessness. But lack, broken relationships are also at the heart of people not experiencing re- homelessness that a lot of us have broken relationships in our life um, and, bro- and broken realities that, that can be addressed through grace. And we shouldn't see ourselves as superior to people who we pass by, but each in need of, of grace and love and, and comfort and respect. And the people in our lives, we, we don't need to begin by building relationships with strangers, but build relationships with those in our lives. Today, I want to talk about the preconceptions in a way. Because preconceptions and anecdotes is one of the biggest, um, I think it's what deeply influences how people respond to homelessness and, and see it um, and think about it. What are, what are our preconceptions? What do we think someone's going to do with money? What do we think someone should be doing with their time? Where do we think someone should be living? Where do we think this should happen? The kind of preconceptions that happen sometimes at the grocery store is like, oh, you're buying that. Instead of this, you know, you're not getting the right brand of peas. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's not a really great example there. But, um, but, that, but you, I think you understand what I'm meaning, the kind of expectations and preconceptions that happen. And oftentimes, preconceptions are based on some kind of reality, some kind of experience. Nathaniel is this odd figure in the New Testament. He only is found here in the first chapter of John. He's not mentioned elsewhere. And he's like, it's a really interesting portrayal, but he has this, this famous first line that, that enters. He enters into the canon with, can anything good come from Nazareth? And some people may read this as, oh gosh, he's just being prejudiced. Oh. Nazareth was, as I have said before, um, a nothing town at that time. Nothing came out of Nazareth. There was not a lot of um, historical record of Nazareth and the early scribes of of the region. They don't mention Nazareth. It's not a place of record. But I think one way of reading Nathaniel is maybe he had had a really bad experience with someone from Nazareth. What if that was, it it happens. There are people who are mean everywhere. (laughs) Um, There's not a class or a race or a gender where there's not someone who's going to be rude once in a while. Uh, that, That happens. I have a friend who was in the Peace Corps and one of the things he told me uh, I asked him, like, what did, well, what did you learn from the Peace Corps? He said, well, I learned that poor people can be mean. And this was a big step for him. He was coming in with this, like, a very, like, holy and devout position. He was a super faithful person. And it, it just struck him of how, how to understand that. And I think that's one of those ways of preconceptions is oftentimes we... Many people, including me, get in these preconceptions. This, if I'm going to be doing something for someone, they should be grateful or they should at least be nice. When in reality, there are kind people and rude people everywhere. And it doesn't depend on social class. It doesn't depend on manners or where someone lives about that. And our expectations are different. If we encounter a rude person at work, 
or at the grocery store, we don't, like, a lot of times you may not start thinking about where, like, what are they doing with their lives or their money and those kind of ways. And the way that judgments fill up when we interact with people experiencing homelessness. And that's something that, that is, a, is a struggle for me. I think it's a struggle for a lot of us is how do we, how do we confront these preconceptions that some may be based on reality, that we might have had a negative experience like Nathaniel, might have had this negative experience of like, I don't want to do that again. I tried that before. Many times in the history of our work corner ministry at Berkeley, people have invited brothers and sisters to come to church. And that has sometimes, most of the time, people decline. Sometimes that happened, and it hasn't always had a positive result. And that's, you know, that's, that's, that can be a challenge. It's like, well, I tried that. I tried that, and it didn't work. So what should I do now? We see that again. Yeah, I know. It feels hard. Um, in this passage from Isaiah that Lucky read, the, in ch- of chapter 49, verse 4, the prophet said, But I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And a lot of times for people whose, whose heart is in, is in mission, who have an experience that like, I feel like I need to be doing this thing in order, in order to help others, if you have a first experience that's really negative, it's really hard to move on from that. It's really hard for that not to be the primary history in your life. And so my answer for that is not that you should just forget it and ignore your past. It's like you, you can't. You can't ignore your past. You can't lie to yourself about your own experiences. But what I want us to think about, and this especially, is why we do anything. <laughs> the most basic question. Why do you do anything at all? Why do you get up in the morning? Why, why all of the actions? Not just this one particular niche of, of maybe whether or not you provide a good to another or care for another or admission but anything at all. And this is a question the, the prophet or the apostle Paul gets to like all throughout. This is one of the hearts of the questions of faith is why, like, why do we act in this way? Now, one way, one reason may be um, because we do things because it makes us feel good. We do things because it's our habit. We've, we've trained it that way. A lot of times people do mission work because they think it's something good out of the goodness of their heart. They feel like it is a need that they, that they can meet. Um, there's, there's all sorts of reasons. But all of it, all of it gets down to, down to the heart of what Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is this passage that's usually read at, um, at Easter. It's at the very end of a long and, and complicated, theologically dense letter. But Paul goes into the details of the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, If Jesus is not raised from the dead, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's a line that's been cribbed a lot of places. Um, but it's one that I think also happens, happens to a lot of us and in our own lives. Um, I think there's uh, a way of living a, living a practical atheism that not, not that we explicit atheism, but the atheism of not living as if Jesus rose from the dead. Living as if, well, it's not my problem. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die anyway. So I don't have to think about the consequences of that. 
I think it's something to confess for myself, something of happening when I have looked away from my brother and sister who's been in need, when I have not responded to a phone call from someone in need. It's that, that mindset of, well, I'm just gonna, I just want to be happy. That's kind of going to bring me down. I don't want to bring myself down right now. I want to stay in a, in a good place, and that might not bring me in that good place. Paul says, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead... What does it matter? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. The consequences don't matter. But, but if he did, if he did rise from the dead, then everything is different. But everything is changed. The heart of it gets to what what happens in one of my favorite stories, Flannery O'Connor's short story, Good Man is Hard to Find. It's the story of the serial killer. Yes, it's one of my favorites about a serial killer. And... um, at the very end, the serial killer is about to, to kill a woman, and he says, the problem was Jesus. He shouldn't have done it. If he did what he said he did, it's nothing for us to do but to lay down everything we have and to follow him. But if he didn't, if he didn't do that, it's nothing for us to do but to just do whatever we want, if that's maiming and killing and all sorts of nastiness. Flannery O'Connor does it a little different than Paul, but it's the same it's the same sentiment. What is the root of why, why we are acting in our way? The, the writer G.K. Chesterton comes at it as well from a different direction. He, was, he wrote in the beginning of the 20th century in London, was a very prolific writer. Um, he did not like technocrats in a way. He did not like medical and sociological experts um, <laughs> In some ways, this is what, from an excerpt from his book, he would say that medical experts had persuaded some local authorities in London that they should order girls to cut their hair short to prevent lice being spread. And what, um, so this is what, this is what was going on, and this is um, Chesterton's response. And Chesterton says, because a girl should have long hair, she should have clean hair. Because she should have clean hair, she should not have an unclean home. Because she should not have an unclean home, she should have a free and leisured mother. Because she should have a free and free mother, she should not have an, a usurious landlord. That little urchin with red gold hair, whom I have just watched toddling past my house, she shall not be lopped or tamed or altered. Her hair shall not be cut short like a convict's. No, all the kingdoms of the earth shall be hacked about and mutilated to suit her. The winds of the world shall be tempered to that lamb unshorn. All crowns that cannot fit her head shall be broken. All raiment and building that does not harmonize with her glory shall waste away. Her mother may bid her bind her hair, for that is a natural authority, but the emperor of the planet shall not bid her to cut it off. She is the human and sacred image. All around her, The social fabric shall sway and split and fall. All the pillars of society shall be shaken and the roofs of ages come crashing down and not one hair of her head shall be harmed. Where, where, what is the source of why we do what we do? Where do we center ourselves? Ironically, this makes me think of the earned income tax credit. Just give me a second. (laughs) So, so the EITC is this phenomenally popular to bureaucrats program. Like most people, it's really hard to get to unless you're an accountant and you really love that kind of stuff. Um, but politicians love it because it, as the way they score it, it pays for itself. So they don't have to worry about adding taxes and all these kinds of things. 
Um, the earned income tax credit is kind of a plateau program. You have to be working in order to get credit for it. And so if you're working up to a certain income, it increases and then it decreases. Um, so but why this matters is what the, the EITC does is it takes people who are just below the poverty line and bumps them above. But the way it's sold is um, the EITC takes 5 million people out of poverty. So, so that's one way of looking at it. You get to sell it like that, but it's the people who are just below to just above. It's moving like two percentage points above. This doesn't deal with the actual experience of people experiencing poverty that most people under the poverty line um, can't work. They're, they're disabled or they're children or they're elderly. Like that's not the reality of most, most poverty. But this, this idea, if I could, it's a technocratic fix. If I can just move this number around, then people will be experiencing life in a completely radical, radically different way, which is not the reality. And so if our, if our focus, if our fixation as a government, as a people, as a church, is, is moving the numbers a little bit to make ourselves feel better, we are not responding to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if we can look, look at the face of another and not think what they need to do, to change, but think of how we can change, how society can change, how our church can change, how our friends can change. How can we change to show and respond to the love that God has revealed in them? How can we be the ones who are the figures of change? How can we not stare in the world and look out in the world and think about, oh, these are the things that people should do as if our lives are all perfect in themselves? And instead, think about how can I see that glow of the angels in the face of another? How can I see the face of Jesus in another? The face of Jesus revealed in, in Isaiah 53 it describes the face of Jesus as, as someone who nobody would recognize, who, who's ugly, has a hooked nose. That oftentimes the, the paintings of Jesus, you know, he's always like very handsome, oftentimes has like a Roman nose, which is kind of weird, is usually white, also kind of weird compared to people in Palestine in that time. Um, <coughs> But, but we try to, try to imagine, imagine the beautiful when the reality of the face of Jesus Christ is not someone that people would be drawn to. The reality of the face of Christ in our community is not someone that we're going to be naturally drawn to because God isn't asking us to be naturally drawn to others, to naturally care for others, but to receive grace. Receive the power of God to act in that way, to act as a church together, to act in that way. To not act out of the goodness of our heart, but because Jesus is risen. Things are different. Next week, we're going to talk about even more practical things that we can do as a church. Um, some opportunities and ways for us as, as, as a whole church to respond to the needs of our community, especially with our brothers and sisters experiencing homelessness. But my, my brothers and sisters today, those of you today, I encourage you. I encourage you to, to look into your heart as you look into the faces of others this week. Not just those experiencing homelessness, but, but anyone you see. Look into your heart and not think about what they can do with their lives, but how you can offer love. What is it going to take to transform your heart so that you can love your neighbor? What is it going to take to transform my heart that I can better love my neighbor, and that realize that's not on me. That's not, I don't need to wake up earlier and do an extra exercise and get on a new diet plan. That God isn't calling us for that. 
but to ask for the grace to live faithfully in this place. To seek, and God says that we will find. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.